Good afternoon and welcome to the Carolina Codecast, the official podcast of the Carolina Code Conference. With me today is Barry Johnson. That's Johnson, not Jones. I'm not talking to myself. Say hello, Barry. Good afternoon, Barry. Good to see you, man. Good to see you too. Thanks for coming on the show. So, so tell us about yourself. What you up to these days? What you doing? Where are you living? Gosh, man. Let's see. I am living in Central South Carolina, which is just right outside of Clemson. Which most people know Clemson, but not that many know Central. But it's not too far away. Living close to paradise over there. Absolutely. I appreciate that. Absolutely, the orange glow. You can see it out the window. Everything. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. And that's exactly what we need to hear. That's right. And these days I am um, I am a trainer and CTO for a company called Seek Quality. We do a lot of um, DevOps, DevSecOps training in SAFE and GitLab these days. So that's that's what I'm up to. Nice. That's that's you know cutting edge of both uh, the uh, the CI pipeline and version control along with um you know, process and procedure, especially for, for larger companies. That's, that's fantastic. hundred percent. Really enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. I may be biased because I also do that. <laughs> with y'all Full disclosure for everybody. Full on the podcast. Yep. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we'll come back to, to see quality. Cause I know I've got a, a litany of stuff that I want to talk to you about. Sure. You, you've got, uh, you know, a, an illustrious career, uh, behind you. And I really want to want to give you a chance to talk about that a little bit more. Sure. So I know, you know, you've been working for Clemson for how many years now? Gosh, I think it's close to 34. Uh, I'm technically retired from Clemson, but I still do a little consulting for them from time to time. But okay. I, I had um, 34 years there and 34 great years there, actually. So what all did you do at Clemson? Wow. Let's let's go through it because I see a number of different positions here on your LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, let, well, let's start at the beginning. Let's see if we can go all the way. That's the, my first job at Clemson was as a student. I was one of those kids who sat in the computer labs and sort of just kind of helped everybody that was there out or if they had a problem. You know, we kind of guarded the labs and we were there as like the first line of the first line of help for people who were having trouble. I became one of those because I was one of the people in the labs and I um, just hung out in them enough because I was a computer science graduate. I'm excuse me, not a graduate at that point, but a student. And I was there anyway, doing my work and I was okay at it. And, you know, before too long, I would watch other people. I would, I would listen to other people asking questions and kind of stuck my nose in it from time to time. And I think if I remember right, somebody who was actually a lab monitor there approached me and says, hey, do you need a job? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And um, that's how I started at Clemson. So I was a student lab person. Um, nice. Not too long after that, I moved to the help desk um, and did some work with those folks and kind of bounced around that till I graduated in May of 89. I have a degree in computer science with an emphasis with and an emphasis is like about three hours short of a minor in artificial yep. intelligence, which finally, 34 years later, it started to be a thing. So <laughs> well, hold on. All right. Now, now we have to back up because right. I, I had every intention of just letting you go through your, your, you know, 37 different positions at Clemson. <laughs> 
But you had essentially an emphasis in AI in 1989. 1989. Sure enough. Tell me about that curriculum. I got to understand. Gosh, well, let's see. It was mostly a lot of um, language, English, um, and some psychology. And later on, we actually got into some some code around it. The the biggest pieces in, in the emphasis part of that degree were English syntax, linguistics, uh, human machine interfaces. Gosh, I'm trying to think of what else. And eventually, my senior year, I did some work with a um, with a professor named Ed Page and another one named Jean Taglarini on some early neural network work. We, um, they, <laughs> they were very patient with me and a handful of other folks who they were trying to bring along in getting, getting us to build small neural networks, teaching us to train them, uh, teaching us to understand what we were doing in the process of that. Um, we, we toyed around a little bit with one, one, um, one scenario was, a real simplified thing, you know, it, at the time, you know, Tom Clancy was a big deal and there was a lot of, um, Tom Clancy's still a big deal. That's true. He still is. RIP Tom, RIP. But <laughs> at the time, a lot of that was going on. There was a lot of, you know, right at the end of the cold war, there was a lot of submarine sort of toying going around. And one of the, one of the right. scenarios that we had was you're in a submarine you have another sub who's actively pinging. You get in, um, you get in pings from that sub. You want to take that and have a neural network read the sound wave, phase shift at 100 degrees, 180 degrees, and send it back out to effectively cancel out, cancel out the ping. So that was one of the one of the toy scenarios that we played with. A few other guys started doing stuff with the stock market, trying to do predictions based on past performances with the stock market. And I think because of course they did went on and actually I think they made some money off of it. But who, who knows? But yeah, that's that was early early. The thing about it was is the, the neural nets were just so slow. Every all the everything was so slow. It was kind of impractical to do much with it. But you could see the potential for sure. And it really, honestly. That stuff hasn't changed that much since then. It's just a lot faster. Yeah. So it, it sounds like based on everything you just described, everything sounded very familiar to what a lot of the the AI technology these days is like. Uh, and it, it really it really does seem to mirror exactly what you're talking about. It's just a lot faster than it used to be. Yeah, for sure. And nice. I really enjoyed really the language pieces of it too, the uh, learning uh, linguistics and syntax, all of that. One of the linguistics projects I had was to learn, to think about, this didn't have quite so much direct application to AI, but I just thought it was interesting. It was taking a look at a newspaper at the time and going through the newspaper word by word and looking up the etymology of each word and determining how old the words were in the newspaper. And what percentage of um, what percentage of the words were old? What percentage of the words were less than a hundred years old? Less than fifty years old? That sort of thing. And it was surprising that most of them were really young. So it kind of gets, it's, it's it's interesting. I think from a from an evolutionary standpoint, like a hundred years from now, the average written piece, how 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 new are the words going to be in that, and would we understand them? <laughs> huh. That is really interesting. Yeah. You know, and it's 
if you ever look at any older documents, like if you ever just try to go back and, and read, you know, the Declaration of Independence is a good example. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just seeing how foreign some of it can sound uh, to, to modern day ears. And that's only a couple hundred years old. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it is definitely interesting to, to look back at all that and, uh, and, and wonder how it, depending on how far back you went or how far forward you go, you know, I always see, uh, I always see jokes going around about how people, you know, my age, you know, and, and their early forties right now, uh, feel so old just seeing whatever modern slang is going on with, uh, with, you know, the Gen Z kids. And, uh, <laughs> it's not keeping up with it when you're 56. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, you have to wonder, are people going to fall out of the slang or are people still going to be saying stuff like drip and glow up whenever they're, you know, in their sixties? <laughs> yeah. I wonder about that same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll find out, yeah. but all right. So, so, so that was interesting. And then, so let me put you back on course. Back on course. So, so you graduated with your emphasis in AI, then you jumped into what what appears to be a programmer role at Clemson for for the early chunk of your career. Yeah, I really did. I um, like I said, graduated in that, and I, I really liked Clemson. I liked the place. I liked the, I liked that I was around. And I wasn't really in a huge hurry to to move on. And to, to move on physically to another city or anything. So I started looking around. I had, um, I, I, I kind of had a good relationship with a lot of people at what was then called CCIT. And it wasn't even CCIT at that point. It was DCIT, I think, the Department of Computing and Information Technology. So I, That's I knew a lot of full-time folks who were there. And as luck would have it, there was some, there was some, um, positions that were coming open the summer that I graduated. So I um, applied for a few, got luckily got, I had a couple of great references and walked into my first position in a, what would be, you would think from an AI person, it was like the most total opposite possible application of your computer science uh, degree. I was writing COBOL on a mainframe. Oh, goodness. <laughs> writing COBOL on a mainframe. So that, um, we were working with, gosh, I'm trying to think what I think at that time Clemson was doing some work on a contract basis for the um, they, they've been doing work with Medicare, and Medicaid for years. But I think at, the point right. time, at that point in time, they were actually doing some for the South Carolina state prison system. And I, if I recall right, I think I, I kind of helped maybe put a few reports together for them or wrote wrote a few reports that would go out to databases and pull in some data and you know, collate it and turn it into something usable for another program. I, I wrote glue at the, at the time in COBOL. Don't we all? Yep, sure did. We all do. That's right. Uh, so from COBOL, I, at the time though, I had some friends who were over on this Unix system called Hubcap at the time. It was one of the, the old, it wasn't even Unix. It was like Digital Equipment Corporation Ultrix, and um, one of the, one of the guys there used to work at, who who ran it. The sysadmin was a guy named Mike Marshall, and he ran Hubcap, and he was like the 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 Unix guru of Clemson at the time. And he worked in the same set of offices where the help desk was, and he and I became friends. And not too long, I think it was, gosh, I think it was fall of. Fall of '89, maybe a little bit later than that, there was a there was a sysadmin position that came open that was closer working with Mike. He was doing Ultrix. I think I I started to be to learn to be a sysadmin in Vax 
VMS, I think it was. It was Digital Equipment Corporation VMS. So I knew what VMS stands for. But anyway, I got to hang out with Mike, and he um, he taught me a lot. That was the that machine was the place where the early Usenet feeds were. So anybody who was a, a all the geeks geeks were on Hubcap on Usenet, uh, early social media of, of its time. Um, with you know subjects ranging from pretty much anything you can think of, there was, it was a big a big Usenet community there. So I got to hang out with Mike, got to learn what he was doing, and before too awfully long, I got to help him with some other Unix systems, and kind of been in love with Unix and Linux and all flavors thereof ever since. Nice. Well, if you ever want to dust off your your COBOL skills, mm-hmm. uh, I am actively recruiting a COBOL developer to uh, to give a talk at the conference this year oh interesting because uh, well, it's it is still being actively used it's just not heavily advertised and I'd, I'd love to get somebody out there to talk about kind of some of its its current day-to-day uses so if you're listening to the podcast and you know anybody who fits that description please let me know or let them know yeah, we'll talk after the show i know some more people that, that might could help you out with that so that'd be kind of cool. all right great so that the whole use that thing that was early internet that was um oh yeah i remember using that really early um you know, most of the most of the things we had done up until that time were just kind of all on Clemson campus or all on Clemson network, truly for what they were. So, for sake of the audience who might not be familiar with Usenet, can you give kind of a quick overview? Uh, kind of think of it as you know, back in the day, it were bulletin board systems where you would where you would dial into this bulletin board system, and there would maybe be these forums on that system to talk about individual subjects, whatever they might be. You, a lot of the boards yep. kind of had a theme around around the system, the, the bulletin board. But Usenet was like a big worldwide bulletin board system. There were channels that are kind of the equivalent of channels now that were kind of hierarchical in nature. They had, um, you know, subjects, a lot of, a lot of programming subjects, a lot of technology subjects. There were a lot of literature subjects. There are tons of stuff, but think of it as a big worldwide bulletin board system. And it it kind of resided mostly, I think at the time, I think it was mostly on Unix systems and um, it used a rudimentary rudimentary version of the internet to to do it. And one of the earlier episodes that was published on here, we actually had a pretty long discussion about bulletin board systems back in the day as well. Oh, cool. So I think that was with, uh, with the episode with Joey Lohman, I believe. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like Joey. That's great. Yep. So anyway, um, that early internet experience got me, I can think of how I changed from there. Again, uh, I'm surrounded by a lot of smart people at the time and that I was getting influenced by all of them about, you know, whatever, whatever was cool about their jobs. I was just trying to soak it in and hanging, out, hanging out with Mike got me really interne- interested in that, in the network as the, the internet part of the network. I, I wasn't so much with the down and dirty networking protocols, but I, I but I, I liked the idea of the, the global community part of it. Not too much longer after that, we were starting to set up Gopher servers. If you remember what, I don't know if you, Gopher's probably before your day. It was, it was kind of the next evolution of Usenet. It was a, um, I don't remember Gopher. Gopher was right before, um, the World Wide Web started. It, okay. It was kind of a hierarchical menu based system of subjects. Uh, there were, Gosh, there were, there were a lot of text-based things. I think there, there were some things where you could download graphical files, but it was the precursor to the World Wide Web. You know, I never really thought about this, but I would imagine that working at a university 
in in the the tech sector of university for years in the earlier years of the internet mm-hmm. had to be really interesting. Dude, it was a lot of fun. It really was interesting. We saw stuff coming and going. It, in fact, the, the being there at the birth of it was really really kind of cool. So there was we we had this opportunity to do what we called dual employment at the time. We could you had your main job, but if you had people around campus who had a special project or they had maybe a a grant or something where they needed a tech person to come help them out. You, you could take the opportunity to go and go help them out after hours and, you know, rank up a, a bank some extra cash for doing that kind of thing. It was all above board. It was all like a, a licensed sort of thing to do. But I, right. I got the opportunity to work with a, um, with a couple who were working with, I'm trying to remember the name of the thing, but I think it was like the National Beef Board. There's, it was attached to the agriculture area, and there was like a, 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 a nationwide association of beef producers. And they were trying to kind of get in with technology at the time and up their game and have more communication among the, the, the beef producers. There was a... There was a um, Kind of an organization, I think it was out of Chicago called the National Beef Board. They were the, they were the people kind of was the community organizers for all these beef producers. And they wanted to do something, um, with not exactly Usenet, but something very close to that. They wanted to do listservs and they, um, they wanted to be able to have uh, email lists where all the beef board people could talk to each other, that sort of stuff. So it, it led me, that project led me into helping set up these Unix systems. Uh, around the country where we'd have like a deck station. I think it was that we had one in Denver. We had one in Chicago. Um, seems like there was another one in Mississippi somewhere. And there was one at Clemson. And my, okay. my, my job as part of that was to help them set up this system where mailing lists could work. People could log into these things, have um, accounts in their mailing lists, send email to all the other people, between the systems and this wasn't like a national email thing. It was kind of a closed system and it used for networking and for um, sending the messages around. It used a protocol called UUCP. It's pretty old, but what it would do was you'd send. Somehow I've heard of that protocol. I don't know why. (laughs) I forget what what it actually stands for. I'll have to look it up sometime, but the, the, the gist of it was, is you could log into the system. You'd have a command line account where you could send some email and that email would get queued locally. And every so often, usually a couple of times a day, it one system would like make initiate a telephone modem connection to that other system somewhere. Like I, the one in Clemson would call, say, Denver. The, the modem on the other end would pick up. There'd be a handshake, and they would send their queued, queued messages across that connection, and then they would they would uh, disconnect. And then that happened. Unix Unix copy. There you go. Unix to Unix copy. But it um. Those those systems would do that a few times a day, and eventually, what it allowed was to be able to send mail across that whole little network of, of, of beef producers. But that that was kind of my early networking experience. But the where I was given the background of that for was is the next phase of that thing was to set up this. At the time, I think we called it this hyperlinked multimedia experience where people could publish articles and then, you know, inside the article, you could link on this thing and then maybe go to another article or see a picture or hear a sound or maybe even see a rudimentary video. This was, that sounds really fancy. They should do that. It does sound really fancy. And this was, this was probably 
two or three years before Mosaic started. So, oh, wow. so I, in about that time, I had, I'd actually done my part and I got, a, I, I was off the project. I was doing other things. I, I kind of came back and did mostly my, mostly my day job. And I can remember that the, one of the ladies, the, the lady that was part of the, uh, there was one of the PIs, her name, her first name was Renee. And I saw her, um, a few weeks later, I guess after the uh, mosaic came out and was telling her about it. And she's like, I cannot believe <laughs> that you know, this is going on. But they, they had the ideas a couple of years ahead back. And I'm sure it was tons of people around the country who had similar kind of projects. But when they saw mosaic and they saw what was capable, I think it was kind of double edged sword, you know, like, Oh wow, this is very, very cool. But wow. Couldn't we have been, it would have been really cool if we had got there first. You know? Yeah. So that was, that was neat. So gosh, and that led me to um, creating the first university, the first, let me see, what's the right way to put this? www.clemson.edu lived on my desk. I had a, <laughs> I had a, had a spark station on my desk. I believe that. That was, um, that was where we, where, where we first brought up www.clemson.edu. So wow. it lived there uh, for a while, and gosh, and then from there, it you know it, it didn't take us long to realize that that shouldn't be a workstation on somebody's desk. That should be an actual server in a machine room somewhere. And it um, it, it started um, evolving from there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a right turn here for just a moment. Well, that's, all right. All right. So in that's it, my Clemson life. But at the same time, I mean, I saw saw a lot of the potential of this, and I. Um, Got together with one of my roommates at the time, a gentleman named Ray Keys, and he and I thought a little bit about this. That he was a he was a rock climber at the time, and he was a graphic artist. He had I think his background was he had an architecture degree, and he did a lot of graphics work. Uh, I, I know several people who have followed that path. Yep. He was a rock and roller at the time too. And we we actually we we ran into each other in the help desk one day and started talking about started talking about Macintoshes and graphics and computers and music and a whole bunch of things. And we, we just kind of hit it off and become great friends after that. And later on, we ended up being roommates. And at the time he, like I said, he was a rock climber and he was a graphics person. So he had this idea to build a t-shirt company with designs that were um, kind of oriented towards rock climbing. And we had this idea, well, why don't we, let's see if we can, you know, do some work with this. He was, he was, um, creating these things and get taking out ads in rock climbing magazines and people were writing in and he was selling t-shirts and swag and, you know, uh, stickers, all kinds of things like that about, about rock climbing. It was called, and he called his company Mighty Dog Designs. Okay. So I, I liked what he was doing. I, I loved his graphic style and, and he and I, uh, kind of hit it off around technology. And we, one day we were sitting, we had this idea, why don't we put these t-shirts on this internet thing. I if there's any way we can get anybody to buy anything this way. And we, we talked about it. That's an interesting more. idea. It was an interesting idea. And, but we didn't know that it, it, the rock, the rock climbing thing was, I, I think we thought it was a little bit um, kind of niche for the internet at the time. So what we decided to do was just make t-shirt designs and mug designs and a few things like that, that were kind of celebrating the internet. And, okay. and and the whole new thing we it was it was funny we we um we found we went out to the national oh gosh what is it the NCSA the National Supercomputing Center up in 
Urbana Champagne. It's basically where Mosaic came out of. Okay. We found the guy who was running the place and w- was able to talk him into licensing for free the logo. And he, he gave us the, the license to the logo so we could represent, represent that logo on picture on, I mean, on t-shirts and mugs. And then we came up with two or three different designs of our own. We built this website and we started selling t-shirts and mugs on the internet. And as far as we know, and no one has reviewed me on this yet, I think we were the first ones to do that. Uh, huh. it went a little crazy. Um, we were getting, we got, we got interviews in, USA Today, the Greenville News. We showed up in PC Computing. We showed up in several places. Well, there was a, I think there's a, actually there's a talk show person who's still around named Kim Commando. She called us when they had, we had the, what was back then the equivalent of a podcast with her at the time, but it was more like a live radio thing. And it was nuts. (laughs) It was kind of nuts, but we, we, um, what it allowed us to do is it helped me pay off some uh, some some student loan bills. It helped Ray pay off some student loan bills and a few other things, and we went on from there. But we had we. we I've, I've got to ask: Do you do you still have any of that merchandise around? I have got a few pieces of merch around. It's still around, and I have the link to the Wayback Machine to show you what was available. I can. I can you, you are going to have to pass that along if you've got any of the merchandise around and you want to hold it up for the camera. I'll be able to edit out the gap if you want to run go grab it. Yeah, I, I wish. I, let me try to think if I do or not. I don't think I do have anything handy. I think it's in a box somewhere up in an attic or something. But I'll it, okay. find some. Not, we won't. We won't wait that long. Yeah. But if you find something, please let me know. I'd love to see that. Yeah. So, but the, I, if you have an extra, I'd love to put it on the on display back I, here with everything else. I might can find you a mug. I might. I think I at least have one of those. But the um, the thing that was really wild about it at the time is we kind of got. We, we we weren't really famous, but we were selling to some famous people. Do, um, what uh, one of the DJs. On um, on or on the VJs on MTV, he's now known as the Podfather. You know who I'm talking about? I have no idea who you're talking about. Um, Adam Curry. He was one of the one of the first big DJs on 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 MTV. He's now they call him the Podfather because he was one of the. I think he was the person who actually came up with the with the name podcast, and he he did some of the early ones. Hmm. But we we he owns at least. Two or three of our t-shirts, maybe some of the mugs. I don't know. That was kind of kind of cool. I think we sold one to like Howard Jones, who was a um, who was a uh, music person at the time, and went on to do a lot of work with Macromedia and Flash and that kind of thing. He's a he kind of went into computer science after he got after he got out of music, but I think he still does a little bit. Um, nice. but what's the what's the guy who did who did I say Howard Jones? I mean, yes. Um, one moment. Let me get you the real name. Uh, Thomas Dolby. That's who I'm thinking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Blinded me with science. That guy. Uh, I, I ran into him at a couple of Apache cons in San Francisco. He, neat dude. Very, very neat dude. Uh, nice. Anyway, so, so, yeah, so we started up the, uh, while we were at Clemson bringing up the, bringing up our first web servers and connecting to the World Wide Web, Ray and I were doing that same sort of thing on our own time. And, uh, we, were, we did a lot of early work. We we had uh, we would we'd go down to Lake Hartwell and kind of just swim around and and uh, hang out and think of ideas for the t-shirts or, or designs and that sort of stuff. We would think up marketing ideas. I, I um, Ray Ray said <laughs> Ray 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 likes to say that I came up with uh, the idea of 
of, of tracking cookies for people who are at your website. So we, we came up with that. I don't think I really came up with that. It was, you know, I think a hundred people came up with that at the same time. Um, yeah, funny how that one works. of those kinds of things. I could, I, I, I give Ray credit for coming up with an early version of influencer marketing. At the time, we called it assassin marketing because it's like you got this one person. If you can affect this one person and get them to use your thing and let everybody else see that they're using this thing, then the other people come along and buy it. And, like, and that was way, way early on before anybody was doing this influencer stuff. Unfortunately, we didn't actually go out and push it that hard, and other people went on and did their thing. But uh, <laughs> I'm glad it got glad it came into being. Oh gosh! And about that time, if we want to keep going, was not not too long after that with the birth of Carolina Online. So I'm going to take a take a. So yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to give you a detour real quick here to to give you a little bit of an intro here, because uh-huh. um, I wanted to segue out to Carolina Online and come back. So. And one of the random funny coincidences of this, uh, you and I have, have taught some of these get live classes with seek quality together. Yep. And in the course of teaching some of these classes, I told you where I had my first job out of college. And you were like, yeah, I started that company. <laughs> and so let's uh let's steer into carolina online right. and and hear that story I'm, I'm dying to get this one recorded i can't take i can't take credit for having the being the only person who started that company i was one of the first oh, i know a lot of people did one of the first five guys who started that company um close enough most of them were clemson people at the time um okay. actually at least one of them is still with clemson um, and we did it on our kind of out of our back pocket and on the on the side. It at the time this was like the time that AOL was was kind of big. Um, there was a few other kind of big national ISPs if you want to call them, but there wasn't that many that were local. And we were one of the first local ISPs in the upstate. Like Barry said, it's a company called Carolina Online. We started out of Anderson, South Carolina. And there was an old, I think it was like an old Bell South building that they sold off, but it had a had a big, what's now a cell tower behind it. I think at the time it was some sort of other kind of radio tower. And it was okay. one of those little huts at the bottom of it. it. But it had the advantage of that there was a big trunk line that came into that into that thing. It was this big wall, big, I don't know, it was probably, probably bigger around than, the, than my forearm. Cable okay. came in through the concrete into that building and in it were like a, probably a thousand pairs, copper pairs of, of telephone lines that came in it. So it was the place to be if you were trying to put a lot of, uh, if you were trying to network, if you were trying to connect um, telephone lines together and take advantage of those connections. And that's exactly what an ISP did at the time. If you were uh, listening to the podcast and you want to see uh, Barry's forearm, you can you can come check out the YouTube video and, uh, and a little bit and get a real idea for the size there of just how many, huge, how many copper wires were there. <laughs> Exactly. So yeah, there we go. Um, but we, um, we, the, the, the one fellow that I, I really, really credit with starting the idea Carolina land was a guy named Gary Merck. Um, he was the, he was the birth behind the idea and he reached out to a bunch of us who had those particular sets of skills 
to to kind of help make the whole thing happen. It, at the time, my, my biggest contribution at the time was um, I was uh, I understood Linux and was a was a fairly decent sysadmin sys by that time. Right. And um, you know, I set up a few of the built and set up a few of the servers there that kind of helped manage things. Uh, they were our early web servers at the company. There were they were our accounting servers. They were the things that uh, did authentication. I've, I've, I've had a fair background in the authentication world too, and that helped me out there. We did some kind of bizarre things at the time. Um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school, but at the time. There was something, and I'm going to get some of these words wrong, but it's kind of, I think it's kind of fun history. At the time, you remember there was a lot, there was this concept of long, well, you may not remember, but it was this concept of long distance versus local calls. Oh, yeah, I remember that. When I was in college, we had to have, uh, everybody had these long distance cards. Yeah. With paid long distance minutes so that you could call home and, and whatnot from the, from the dorm room. Same here. Yeah. And you could buy them in chunks too, like chunks of minutes and be able to, to, to get yep. cheaper rates and that kind of thing. Well, well, in the upstate, at least there was, you know, if I remember right, it was like you had, you had a county or two where you were, you were local. You might, you probably local to just your county, roughly something like that. Yeah. But anything That's outside nice. that county, it was going to cost you extra money when you called. So, mm-hmm. What we wanted to do, though, is we wanted to we had our building in in Anderson, but we wanted to make it so we could spread the um, the market out a little bit. Because being in Anderson, we were local for Clemson and Pendleton. We were local for like Star and Iva. We were local for any pretty much anything that was on that county boundary, roughly. Those people could dial in just fine. But that was that was fairly tight market. But what we really wanted to be was the um, the provider for the upstate and a little further if we could make it. So at the time there was these um, there were these there were loopholes in, in in the way the, the the system worked. If you had a landline in your house that was near one of those county boundaries, like on the far edge of it. Or you were like, say, if you were in Spartanburg County, but you're you lived really, really close to Greenville County, you could usually be in the local area for Greenville County. So you could kind of go over that barrier there. And they, I think they it what it, it kind of roughly roughly followed county lines, but I think they called them LATAs, and I'm not even sure what LATA stands for at the time. But we took advantage of this thing called a interlata loophole, where where we could bounce between these LATAs. So what, okay. what we, a bunch of us did is we, we, um, like I had relatives who lived in Spartanburg County, but very close to the Greenville line. I talked them into letting me have, letting me get Bell South to come out and put an extra landline at their house and Carolina online would pay for it. And there was this concept. If you had a line, you could go in and you could set up forwarding numbers on the line. So if you called the line that was at at, at my relative's house, I could set up a forward on it so that it would forward to a different number. Well, the the number that it was forwarded to would be the one in Greenville County. And then the, the line that I was forwarding it to there had a forward on it that forwarded to Anderson County. So we made this daisy chain of hard landlines in people's houses so that we could have local numbers spread out around the upstate. <laughs> and amazingly, it worked. 
it was a um, it was a nice it was a set of loopholes that we just took advantage of at the time. That's just flat yeah. out. We, we we had this script we'd call we'd call the, tel- the the telephone company at the time and we would say yes I'd like to set up this this and this and I would like it to have this and this and this on it and we would never never deviate from the script because it worked. And um, everybody in the company at the time who were the founders, we just started kind of spreading out around the, around the upstate, finding everybody who were friends and relatives who would let us do this. And then we even rented a few apartments in a couple of places where we didn't have people and then terminated lines there and did that whole bouncing thing all the way back to Anderson. But it, but, <laughs> so wow. it worked out. <laughs> so, um, so what you did was essentially the, uh, the 1990s telecom equivalent of trying to maximize all the free plans on different services 100 <laughs> percent through the various loopholes that are out there. <laughs> yep sure enough i did that with email services at one point i actually i actually at one point i set up one website that was uh, that used outgoing email from uh, like five or six different email providers and it would have a hard cutoff at wherever their free plan ended mm-hmm. and then it would roll over to the next <laughs> but the, uh, the the phone system way is much more fancy and sounds a lot more interesting. Than my version of it was a mess. <laughs> it was a mess, and it was it's a, it was um, amazing that it actually worked. But nice. it it did. So we had we were able to kind of expand our market out. We had local local phone numbers pretty much all the way up through the upstate and before long. And so y'all were able to to and, and so I, I get the I get the forwarding piece from number to number forwards. Yep, but. How did that work in terms of business value? Translate that to me. In terms of business value. Being able- like, what, what did you gain in business function that made it worth it to, to rent an apartment just to get a phone number so that you could bounce them to a different county? What did that do for business? We, we, we were able to go into those parts of the upstate and say, hey, come and sign up with us. We have a local number. We don't. We- okay. And, and so by doing this, you were able to you were able to get more customers that just didn't have a any fee to call in to you to sign up. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. To sign up or, or to actually use. Remember, we were using modems at the time. So yeah. these mo- the, these telephone lines, you 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 pointed your modem at these numbers, and they were mm-hmm. there was something some part of our script when we had these things set up that allowed. I think it allowed like per line, it allowed ten connections across them at the same time. So ten people could dial that one local number and be able to get through and get a get a modem connection. So okay. as we um, as we got that work and we kind of paid attention to how saturated they were getting and then we'd go go get another apartment or we would um, had another line attached to that uh, attached to that apartment. It was some limit about how many lines you could have at any particular place. But we, we maxed them out, whatever they were. Awesome. My parents had at least two at their house for a while. But <laughs> oh, God. that is that is fantastic. Yeah. Man. Gosh, and that all went back to, I think we were running BSD Linux at the time, uh, BSD Unix. It wasn't even Linux at the time. Um, on I, I had a job in 2012 where I had to take over uh, 30 BSD servers that had not been updated since 2000. So I know exactly what you were talking about when you talk about late 90s, early 2000s. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that kind of that's a good segue to say that Carolina Online went through several uh, acquisitions and mergers and being bought up, and they went from Carolina Online to I want to say State Communications, and then to Nuvox. I think was one, which is where I had my first job. Yep, where Barry had his first job, and then 
I don't, not sure after that, but eventually it ended up being Windstream. And there is a large building downtown in Greenville and with the Windstream logo on it. And it makes me smile every time I see that. I, I was out of the company and sold out my shares way before all that happened. I wish I'd hung on mm-hmm. to a few of them, but, <laughs> but hey, it, um, I had accomplished what I needed to do at that point. So it was, it was, it was just a very cool time. It was the wild west of, of, of internet connectivity. So we were, yeah, it certainly was. It certainly was. And so, you know, Windstream is obviously a, a huge company. And I got there whenever Nuvox had just merged with New South. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they used to have two buildings in downtown Greenville. One of them was that, uh, that three or four story building that's right at the intersection of Washington and Maine with like the big triangle. Uh, you know, awning yep. thing on the front of it, right across the street from the giant Clemson One building. Yeah, yeah. it was in that Clemson One building at that time when I was working there. It was just a, a old condemned. Um, uh, it was a condemned building that used to have like a clothing store in it or something like that with broken windows and stuff. You you were kind of sketched out just walking around it. Um, and then that building where Windstream is now, that's where Nuvox was. I used to work on the seventh floor of that building uh, for uh, for a while there. Oh, and uh, yeah, it's. I was actually in there the other day because there's a bank in the bottom of it. I had to go meet up with them now too. It's a uh, Ameris Bank, I think, has an office down there now. But yeah, it was a uh, it, it was cool to go back and and hear that. And that was it was a, it was a well run place with a lot of really smart, interesting people mm-hmm, for sure. And a lot of them were still my friends. I, I you know there was there's a lot of cool people there for sure. Yeah, for sure. I know I know one of your longtime colleagues, uh, Eric Hester, yep. uh, worked there. And so so what was what was your story with Eric back at uh, back in Carolina like? Because I I know I've been talking about trying to get him on the show at some point. Yeah, because uh, Eric has kind of a long and storied history in the area. He was one of the guys that went and started Green Cloud. Now, now I think he's doing his own uh, umbrella technologies thing. And he was you know, he was leaving Nuvox whenever I first got there. Um, but uh, but I did get to cross paths with him briefly. So Eric was uh, another roommate of mine. We um. Really? Yep. Sure enough, Eric, oh, wow. Eric lived. We, we had this little house in Central that was Ray, Ray owned it, and we just kind of started. We 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 collected roommates. Said we were all friends before this, and they and at some point in time, several people came and went through that house and rented rooms. And, and, and Eric was there with when I was there for a time. Um, he, um, I remember he and I used to play. Um, gosh, what was it called? World of Warcraft, I think, at the time. Oh yeah, we had we yeah, had we had, big, we had big house land parties in our house. We had uh, we had coax just kind of strung all over through the apartment, this two story house, and we played a lot of World of Warcraft. We, um, you know, today's generation needs more land parties where they actually had to come into one place and bring all their equipment and hook everything oh, yeah. up just so they could play together. It's too convenient for them now. <laughs> it is. You had to work at it back then. Exactly. Well, you had to work at it back then. But but Eric had nothing like getting killed in one of those games and getting to yell at the person next to you. And I, I met Eric. I think I met Eric at Clemson. He um he worked for Clemson for a short time in, in the in the nineties while while I was there and before he went out and did his own thing. But he, 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 he and I became friends at Clemson. We worked on a lot of the early web servers together. He, he did a lot of the initial work on making it so every student at Clemson could have a, uh, their own personal website. He, oh, nice. he wrote a lot of the, um, I think he wrote some of the initial Apache modules for that when we were right. using Apache. I'll, 
I'll ask him about that when, when we come on. I don't want to segue into a whole thing on your talk about it. About no worries, but, uh, Eric's a great guy. got to get him on here at some point. I hope, we, I hope you do get him on because he, he, he'll – I love his stories. He and I laugh way too much when we're together because there, there's so many, many crazy stories from back in the day. So those are the best. Those are absolutely the best. Yeah. So with, uh, so with Carolina Online, you were involved. You all were acquired. What was that like? By that time, let's see. I, by the time the acquiring started, I was gone. It, or late, okay. it's 98 or so. I think I sold off my shares and kind of went back to work full-time. Well, I was full-time at close to the time anyway, but I, I kind of went back to just doing one job at the time. Uh, okay. And I was, uh, I met my wife and was getting married and, and, and you know, I didn't have as much free time for for doing geeky pursuits at the time. So <laughs> we, uh, we uh, and that was a, that was a good good time to transition out of Carolina online and not be up late at night working on odd calls and, you know, trouble tickets and that kind of stuff. Yep. I can, uh, I can, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. I had a lot of late nights in my twenties. They were no longer tolerable once I got, <laughs> once, once, once I had kids, they were barely tolerable once I was married. Uh, 100%. I, I get you. But so yeah, I didn't, I didn't, wasn't there for a lot of the, um, a lot of that, you know, the mergers and acquisitions and stuff that was going on. But I'm, I hope you do get Eric on because he can tell all those stories beautifully. Yeah. All right, well, let's back, back to you. So you went back to Clemson. Back to Clemson. Um, you worked as a programming analyst for about 16 years. Yeah. Uh, and then you started moving into management. Yep. Programmer analyst, that was kind of a, um, I don't know, it was kind of a, a catch-all position for doing a lot of, lot of different things. I wrote a lot of... Um, a lot of web code early on. We wrote some of our first stuff that you'd consider web apps in Perl. Perl was, I, my, I think Perl's still one of my favorite languages. Being the code, being the code podcast, we need to talk about languages. Oh yeah, absolutely. Perl was the first language that I used at, at one of my internships. I spent an entire summer with Perl and learning about regular expressions. Oh yeah. Um, and then when I got back to Clemson on those little personal sites, I wanted to use Perl, mm -hmm. but they couldn't give me a way to uh, to use. I think it was the Perl DBI to connect to a database because I wanted to connect to MySQL with it. And so I ended up having to use PHP yep. because that was the only option I could use to, to connect to the free database that they would give us. And so that is actually how I got into PHP because Clemson wouldn't give me the option to I could use Perl. I just couldn't use it with a database. That's why I learned PHP. I was one of those guys that you were probably cursing at the time. <laughs> well, at the time, I didn't know anybody. Yeah, so. At the time, Perl was tough to, to do on those early web servers because you had to give it execute rights. It, had, it ran yeah. with inside of Apache, and and it was just it was it was full of holes as far as security is concerned at the time. Yeah, running Perl without root back in the day was a problem. Yeah, it really was, and and that's why we we sort of push people towards PHP. The syntax wasn't that much different that you could pick it up fairly quickly and yeah. that kind of thing. But going back to languages, I wanted to start back. Like my first language was, was basic. And that was basic with two that were right there together, basic and assembler on a Commodore 64 back in the day. Nice. Um, I remember I, my, um, my grandfather and my uncle ran this company where they were, they installed septic systems and I worked with them in the summer and I saved my money up and bought myself a Commodore 64. I was digging, literally digging, digging ditches to, to help to, to, to get money together for my Commodore 64. So I had, um, 
had great fun that summer, but at the time I, I remember buying, um, these Commodore magazines where they would give you a program and it was just pages and pages of numbers that you would use these poke commands to shove into, into memory. And it took, you know, it would take you hours and hours and hours. And eventually you might be able to uh, have a program pop up that was like a lunar lander or, or, or some kind of a, some kind of silly game or something. But it was the early, early days of, um, of me writing code from that stuff. I learned a lot of concepts that helped me out when I came to Clemson and gosh, when I got to Clemson, I think the first, first, first code was that did here was, we, I thought I was hoping we would do basic because I knew it really well, but we didn't. I ended up having to do mainframe assembler and Pascal and Pascal was nice. my early code. And then that I learned some Java while I was at Clemson. Um, it was, That's what they started us with when I got there. It was some other variant between Pascal and Java that I can't remember the name of it. It was a functional kind of language that had a little bit of object support. Um, Ada was in there somewhere. I think I think a little bit of Ada. Uh, But Pascal was my was my early stuff. And then eventually when I went to work, Perl was the language that really helped me out with a lot of stuff. We were trying. I think my first exposure to it and the reason I got to learn it was we were trying to uh, set up computer labs where you could go sit in a lab and use your your Clemson user ID and password to be able to log into a system and be able to it be yours. And yeah. we, uh, we were able to do it with the Windows systems with Novell, I think, at the time. But yep. it, that sounds right. But the Mac labs were a little different. And we had to, the only way to talk to that Mac client, if I remember right, was to use Mac Pearl. So it forced me to go learn Pearl to be able to talk to Netware from these Macintoshes and make it make. Never even heard of Mac Pearl before. Yeah, for real. You, you, no one would, it, it probably still doesn't exist. I don't even know it's out. Googling that right now. <laughs> Back in the day, Mac Pearl. Um, but I kind of, I, I was being a Unix guy and a Linux guy, I was already familiar with regular expressions and being able to uh, use those to edit files, edit edit things in text. And Pearl was a natural extension of that. Yeah. And it's pretty cool, which brings me to a, to a story. Um, well, before I get to that story, I'll come right back to it. PHP was my next love after that because mm-hmm. things we talked about. And I've kind of stayed with PHP forever. I've done a little bit of Python, but PHP was probably my lengthiest use language. But back to Perl. One of the coolest things I really loved about Perl was just that it was a a natural tool for editing text and moving text around and chopping it up, doing cool Cool things. Oh, data. Uh, so fast too. I think so fast at it. Yeah, I think it stood for like practical extraction and reporting language or something along those lines. And it was real, real kind of um. I don't know you, you could do. It was kind of you could do the same thing about ten different ways, and you could do it in ways that that were perfectly readable, and you could do it in ways that were not. <laughs> and what was what was a little aggravating about it was you'd run around, you'd run up on code that somebody had written to, to so that it was like in the shortest possible syntax, but you couldn't really understand what was going on. And and that led me to um, the, the guy that wrote Perl originally, his name was uh, Larry Wall. Yeah. Larry, Larry had this thing that says the, the, the three great virtues of a programmer are laziness, impatience, and hubris. <laughs> 
<laughs> yep, yep. And, and, and if most of you out here, if you're, you're coders, you know this is the case. Even if you don't want to admit it, you know this is the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you, you want to, you, you, you get tired of, you never want to do the same thing more than once. Uh, you, you feel like you can do it better than anybody else can. <laughs> And you all of these are are, are painfully familiar, <laughs> but um, but yeah. So I, I always remembered that about what Larry said there, and, and I tried to kind of pay attention to when, when when I saw that. And at the time, you know, you, you're young, you're a coder, you're 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 you feel like you're getting a lot done, and you, you're trying to live up to those expectations from Larry. You know, you want to you you're you're taking that as you're taking that as serious. Okay, I'm all these things. I can do this stuff. This is good. I'm a perfect coder. And then later on in life, as you get older and you move into management, you realize that that was kind of a joke. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was um, it was really good to, good to have all those things as a programmer. But when you tried, when you got into teams where if you were a lone programmer, that was great. But if you got into teams, yeah. you start working with people, you um, God forbid you got into management you realize that you really needed the opposite of those things to be able to get along and to keep going in your career. Uh, yeah. you, you, gosh, you needed to be patient. <laughs> you need to be patient. And you got, and you, you got to know that you're not the smartest person in the room. Somebody else is there. Um, and, um, and gosh, laziness. Nah, nah, you, you're going to do more work in management than you ever did in coding. <laughs> it's just one of those kinds of things. That is the truth. Yeah, that's true. So, um, Gosh, yeah, there, there was a. Um, you're, you're probably looking at my resume. I don't even remember the dates these days, but I remember moving in my first management job. I, I, I went in. I was so cocky. I thought I knew what was going on. Uh, Information technology manager back in 2005. Yeah, I think we were. That was post. We had we had just got to rolling out the. Um, I think we called it CLE at Clemson. It was like the Clemson learning environment. It was like the first online okay. system. It was pre-Blackboard, if you remember Blackboard being there. Um, I don't really remember Blackboard. Blackboard, I think, was starting to come in just as I graduated. I, I graduated from grad school in 2003. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you were kind of, you may have been right there on the, right there. I was actually, no, hold on. I graduated in from grad school in 2004. It was, yeah, it was May 2004. So we, we um, originally did our own online learning system at Clemson. We wrote it for us. And then after that happened, we moved on to a system called Blackboard. It was a, it was a off the shelf thing and we integrated. And about that time I moved into doing some early management, but I was also still doing, um, I had moved on a little bit from doing web applications and writing web applications to doing things more around authentication and security, authentication and authorization. Um, I had management titles from then on, uh, varied from, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm going to read out some of these for you real quick. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'll, I'll read, Cause I don't, I don't want you to have to cover every single position and everything here, but so we, you went from information technology manager for about two years for five years, you were the director of virtual organization, yeah. which I do want to come back and hear exactly what that means. Okay. Um, you were, uh, Spent a year as an applications architect and research associate. Yep. Uh, then as a research associate and a program director for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Then in 2015, you became the chief of staff to the deputy CIO of infrastructure. Yep. Uh, interim executive director of enterprise systems and applications at Clemson mm-hmm. for um, about 
nine months before you uh, finished out your career as Clemson CTO for the final five years. Yep, sure enough. Gosh, well, all of those are you bring back some memories with all of those, but you, you can sum up some of those. Some of those title changes were things that where the uh, the university went through some changes in the way that they classified folks. Some of it was I moved between interesting projects. I always like to try to learn as much as I could about a particular system, uh, innovate in that system as much as I could. And then, but I knew myself to know that at some point in time, when it got up and running, I was, I, I like to build stuff, but I'm terrible at wanting to maintain it. So at, the, at that time I was, a lot of people can relate to that. I, I, think. I tried tried hard to work myself out of a job. So I would, I would work on a, work on a project for a long time till I got it to the point that I'd, I'd kind of learned everything I could out of it or wanted to learn about it. And I would see something new on the horizon and I was lucky enough to be able to, to pivot to those new things and hand off the systems I was working on. So I was bouncing a lot between a lot of projects in, in that, right. in that, that time period. Also had people that were working with me and, you know, they were the, I always say that I don't think people really worked for me. Most people just worked with me. And by the time I had gotten to the CTO part, I had gotten to the point where no one worked with worked for me on paper. Um, but I still was enjoyed being able to, to work on projects and get stuff done. And it, it was more of a I, I'd gone back to the purest form of working with people and then not right. having to work for me directly. But the um the, all those projects were really interesting at that point in time. I was trying to think where we were going. We were we were past a um, we were past talking about oh yeah authentication authorization. Yep. So one of the one of the things I was lucky enough to get exposed to was um, a lot of the inner workings with where people log on. Uh, you know, be able to put in there, putting that one user ID, a single sign on, one user ID and password to be able to get into any Clemson system. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky enough to get in at the ground floor of writing a lot of uh, pieces and plugins to things to allow that happen uh, to happen. I was able to um, write some rudimentary single sign-on stuff for web applications at Clemson okay. uh, before we moved on to doing um, something a little more standard with SAML. Um, SAML two, a, a system called Shibboleth. It's kind of a, a flavor a variant of SAML two that's. I've heard of it. It's um, it's big with universities. We it, it's a it's a the a lot of universities get together and do federations for their metadata so that you don't have to do as much one to one exchanging. Clemson's part okay. of that, and we were at the at the time. I kind of had some internal battles with internally in in my own brain and internally in inside the inside our um, our division about keeping the things that we had built versus scrapping that and going to something standard. And um, I, I was, I'm always a proponent. If somebody's done it better, you don't care how much time I spent on it. If somebody's done it better and it's easier to maintain, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, why, why not? So it, we um, were able to, to scrap some of the earlier stuff that I wrote and are participated in writing with other folks and, and go into these, some, these standard sorts of things. And I kind of become an expert. I had become an expert at that point uh, in, SAML systems and setting up authentication and learning about authorization. And that served me well for a lot of things and kind of just kept moving from project to project and learning new things and meeting new people and 
it's been, it was an honor to be able to work with as many people there as I could and to learn as many things as I could. So that's, that's quite a career Clemson. Thank you. Uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, and Clemson is of course a place that very similar to you. I'm, you know, I'm, I know you came from the Blacksburg area, went to Clemson and then wanted to hang around afterwards. You know, I grew up in Florence, went to Clemson and I live 20 minutes down the road and easily now, largely because I didn't want to go too far away from Clemson after I was done. I mean, we've got, you know, when, when my wife and I got married, we would go back to Clemson on the weekends for sometimes for sporting events, sometimes just to go, you know, walk in the botanical gardens or have a picnic or something. And it's just a, it's a beautiful place in general. I got good restaurants and everything over there too. You got the lake. It's, it's, it's a wonderful spot. Um, then, you know, now we've got, you know, we've got kids. We go over there and do that with them also. We typically, we want to go out to dinner. We're going to turn around and go to Clemson instead of turning around and going to Greenville and give them the choice of where we are, you know, halfway here and easily. And uh, I just, it, it, it's a, it's a really great spot. And um, so I can very much understand uh, wanting to, wanting to hang around and the, uh, the magnetism of it for sure. <laughs> and so it's, it's uh, I'm, I'm glad to see that you have that level of appreciation for it too. Thank you. I, I, I do. I love it. I've, I've loved it for a long time and, and still, still do. And uh, it was, it was tough decision to uh, decide to retire from Clemson, but it, you know, yeah. it was, it was during when all of us were in kind of turmoil with COVID and learning to learn, yeah. learn to work at home and deciding whether or not how much we wanted to do on a regular basis. And, uh, that was um that was lucky lucky for me the timing worked out so that I was able to retire from the state at that point and um, I'd always said I'd I'd like to um, I'd like to retire give myself a little bit of time to get bored and, yeah. and then do something different and I kind of kind of did that I did I'm doing something a little bit different in that I'm uh, I'm a trainer now. And yes, we talk about that a little bit. Your time will see quality. See quality. Yep. It's a company in town, small company who um, do a lot of work in the in the DevOps space. A lot, a lot for military contractors, uh, government right. agencies. Um, small but talented. Yes, a small but talented group. This is true. <laughs> and um, they, they do amazing work and, and have a lot of amazing contacts in the industry. And it, it's been fun to to learn to be part of that. I really in on the GitLab side, that's where I, that's where I do most of my work is in uh, GitLab training. That has right. been a great fun to learn that product and to learn the processes around it enough that I can, that can teach others and bring them along. The, yeah. um, the, the product and the processes around it are just first class. And I can't, I can't say enough how much I appreciate that. There was a, um, there's so many times I see products and things now that, that I've been, I'm getting exposed to by being part of C-Quality that I wish I could have known about before I left Clemson because I would love to have pushed some of that stuff that way because they, they really, it would have been, it would have been fantastic when I was there that they could have used a lot of the stuff that was there. In fact, yeah, in fact sure. we were at Clemson, we were, we were blessed to have a lot of different software technologies and a lot of different uh, packages that we could use. And, and there was some early use of GitLab there that I had kind of gone a different way. I was working a lot with Atlassian stuff and there were a lot of folks who were working with GitLab and I didn't really pay much attention to it. And now I wish I would have. Yep. Sure enough. The, um, 
Yeah, so the you know, not nothing against the lasting. So I've I've had great experience with the, yeah, with the lasting too. Awesome. But uh, I, I know it's I got to sit in on one of the classes that you were teaching one time, and uh, on on some of this the GitLab technology. And one of the one of the first kind of overview slides of GitLab is, is they really talk about how they try to uh, have a, a single pane of glass right. experience where they're basically combining every single tool that you would need um, in your in your development stack all the way from, um, from, you know, your, your planning and, and product management to your development and deployment and then monitoring after it's, after it's already out there. And, uh, and it shows all the various different equivalent technologies that, that people typically use at different phases of this game. And I remember you look, looking up there and saying, I, I'm pretty sure I've used all of those. <laughs> and it's like a hundred different pieces of software that people are, are used to putting together from their APIs and everything yeah, like that. Yeah, man, it's an embarrassing uh, religion. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. It, it, exactly, exactly. And it's uh, and definitely a pretty cool piece of technology that way. It, it is. That so, single uh, pane of glass thing to me is is so important. And it's, it's double-edged sword, dude, because I love, I, I'm an Apple guy. I love Apple equipment. But mm-hmm. like we're, I'm talking to you right now on a, on a 2020 MacBook Air, and I can do all the coding I want to do in GitLab just in a web browser. You know, I, mm-hmm. it's, I, I don't I don't need super hardware to do it, and it's double edged sword because I kind of want to buy some new hardware, but I don't really have a re- good reason for it. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's pretty cool in that aspect. Yeah, it's you know I'll, I'll give you an example of that as well. So I. Uh, I decided that I needed to get a a computer that had a proper video card because of all the AI stuff that's going on. And I just needed something that could take advantage of it. And video cards are so expensive these days, if you get a good one, that you may as well just get a new computer. Yep. Because the video card, a, a really good one, will, call, will cost over $1,000 sometimes. Yeah. And so, um, you know, pre, um, previously, and what I typically use, I've got this little, this little System 76 Meerkat. It's like a cube. Mm-hmm. Thing. It's about, it's like a, you know, it's about that tall and about, yeah. you can't see on my screen, but whatever. It's, it's about like three inches by four inches and about two inches tall, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I've got it sitting like on my desk in the corner over here, like next to my mouse. And it's about the same size as the mouse. Um, and it's, it's kind of become my home server, but, but it doesn't have any type of high end GPU on or anything like that. And I've, and so I decided, you know what? My son's getting into video games. Maybe it would be helpful for us to have a gaming PC around the house too. So I just went and bought an Alienware machine. Cool. And I've got this huge Alienware machine sitting next to this little Meerkat. You know what the very first thing that I do on my uh, on my Alienware machine is when I want to code something? What's that? I SSH into the Meerkat. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I understand. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and so uh, it's just, it, it's just, it, it's funny how it works. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so we're getting a little bit a little bit longer. There's other stuff that I, I definitely want to talk to you about. Yeah. So let's let's pull back a little bit on 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 your journey. What got you into technology in the first place? Gosh, what got me into technology? I was you know, I was always the kid who was into sci-fi. Uh, I was into you know fantastic tales and weird stories about UFOs and, and aliens and just anything I could get my head around with sci-fi was, was the way to go. And I I know a lot of, with a lot of folks, for some reason, that affinity for science and science fiction kind of pushes you in the direction of, of, of technology. And that's what did it for me. I, um, 
Okay. I started with that. Like I said, I bought that Commodore 64 when I was early on. I, I'd actually say yeah. that my first computing, I think it was like an Apple II in, in high school. We, we had, a, had a teacher who was, who was into starting to experiment with that stuff. And she was able to bring me along and, and, and teach me a few things. And I had one of the cartridge tandy things from Radio Shack. Oh, back cool. In the day. cool. Yeah. Um, the first computer I think I ever had in my house was just somebody loaned to me for just a little while it was like a Tomic Sinclair 1000 or something like that. It was like this. Never even heard of that terrible one. Terrible <laughs> little hardware. And I went from there to Tandy's to, to um, I think I had a TI-99 4A at one point in time, I think it was called, or what, whatever the little TI-99 um, system was. And, but at any rate, that it was. It went from um, it went from a love of science and sci-fi to that, and then it, and honestly, when I got to um, thinking about college, one of the things I really wanted to do because I always loved to draw and love art and things like that was I really wanted to become an architect. Um, but be perfectly honest, I looked at the at the curriculum and I looked at the time it was going to take, and it it just didn't appeal to me that much. I was always brought up with the, you know, get, get a, get a job that's going to pay the bills and get a job that's going to get you good insurance. I was able to mention, I was able to pull off both of those and still have a good time with computer science. Um, I, I, I started looking at that, figured that that was going to work out in a way that was going to, going to be able to help me out and pay off my student loans. And turns out, turned out to be a great career too. So it was, it was good. Nice. All around. Which, you know, that brings me back to this one last little thing I wanted, wanted to mention while we're together. Uh, you, when you were talking about having your, your home server, that, that kind of yeah. hit me about, I know a lot of us, you are, I'm sure, and I am, we're kind of like the family CTO. We're the, yes. we're the person, if, if not just our immediate family, but a lot of times, you know, our extended family, we're the people that people. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's always yeah. At, at one point, my mom called to tell me happy birthday, and, and she said, I'm having trouble with the computer. <laughs> Happy birthday and I'm in trouble with the computer. And I have I have since used that story whenever I had neighbors that were asking me for too much tech help. I've told them that story and they stopped asking me. <laughs> <laughs> so. I get it. I absolutely get it. But yeah, we, uh, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are people who are in that same same boat. Um, yeah. And along with that too, like, like I said, I'm in my, gosh, middle 50s, like 56. I'm headed towards my late 50s. And okay. I'm, I'm at that point in my life where I have a lot of elderly relatives um, that, mm -hmm. that need help with things. I um, And I, I have a couple of friends who are into that in that same point in their life, they're the fam, they're their family CTO and they're their, their remote support for a lot of elderly folks. And it got us thinking about maybe building out our own podcast or YouTube channel or I don't know, social media group about being that role, about being a CTO for your family or about, and about being that remote support for a lot of folks who aren't maybe so technically inclined. That's a great idea. Um, so I think it may work. We haven't taken it very far, but if um, any of your listeners are into that or interested in that, if you can give us some feedback, I'd, li I'd like to know if that there's an interest in yeah. it before I dive into it hardcore. So. Absolutely. So so if there is any interest in, in sort of the, the family CTO podcast and YouTube channel uh, and you think that's a great idea, feel free to jump on to either the Substack where this is published in the first place, you can add a comment there. You can comment on it on our, on our YouTube channel or any of the various social media channels. And I'll make sure that that, um, that, that feedback makes it back to, uh, to Barry Johnson for you. Appreciate that. Um, and, and if you end up creating the, uh, if you do end up creating the, um, the YouTube channel or any of that stuff in between the time when we do this interview and the time when it's actually published, yeah. 
um, just uh, let me know and I will include it. I'll include the link to it in the show notes. People can go and kind of discover it right there. Sounds like a plan. And even honestly, even if you get it after the fact, I can always go back and update the show notes to include it. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, and you know, I know I, I, I told you I had a heart out at, uh, in, in about a minute from now, but I did check and I added five minutes worth of time. So we're good. I don't want to rush you out because this has been a fantastic conversation. No, this has been great. Um, it's been great. I appreciate you having me on and it's been a, been a fun conversation. Great afternoon. And I'm hoping. Well, there's one more thing you said you wanted to talk about and I don't want to rob you of the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you really wanted to talk about the transition from going from being a coder into tech leadership. And you kind of touched on it a little bit with that Larry wall quote and, and, you know, being very assertive and controlling uh, as, as a programmer, the, uh, you know, the, I forget exactly what the quote was. You want to recap it one real quick? Uh, the the Larry Wall thing was laziness. With the, the, the three great tenets or characteristics of a programmer are laziness, impatience, and hubris. Exactly, and so those definitely work well in an, in an individual programmer uh, who's trying to to push forward and 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 innovate and make things better, and especially when they have control of everything. Yeah. Uh, when you've got control of all of the code and you can do that and you can say, I'm making this do this way and I can, you can really bend it to your will, but that doesn't work with people. It's, it doesn't work as a technique with people. Absolutely. And, and so, uh, and so you've had, you know, uh, you've had uh, about 20 years worth of, uh, worth of experience in, in tech leadership all the way to the top. And so do you want to just give us some, uh, some insights on, on kind of, I would say one, one of the biggest things is, is, what got you here won't get you there is, 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 a, is a good quote I've always heard. The other thing is, is that if somebody offers you leadership training, that means that they see potential in you and you should take it. <laughs> when, when they first, uh, I was first offered that by, uh, by our CIO at the time, my first thought was, oh man, this is going to be unbearable and cheesy and, you know, all these things that you, all these bad perceptions about what leadership is about. And it, it's so different than that. It really is. It, it, it can be life-changing. It's, it doesn't have to be all those, all those cliches. It's really, honestly, at its gut, it's really about being, learning how to be decent to other people and to, and to encourage it in others. And, and, that that's that was the biggest revelation to me was that it's just about being a decent human and and yeah. and and having some humility and knowing you're not the smartest person in the room and 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 getting people to you know to want to help you and yeah. and to and for really the other part is 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 you helping them by you helping them it helps you and helps everybody's overall overall goals and it's just a good thing. And what, what I'll, I'll go one more Clemson plug was there's the, it was a Clemson leadership Institute. It was run, run out of Clemson one. Uh, okay. I, in 2011, I went to a class. There's week long class with, um, Gail de priest was one of the folks who was running it. And I think she's still part of that program. Now she had a bunch of, uh, some tech people, some people marketing, different people from all over the upstate all got together and we had a cohort there for a week. And it was a, it was a life changing, changing experience. I, I, I have friends that I met there in that class who are, we're still friends now and still get together and talk on a regular basis. Um, just learned a ton out of that. And if you ever get a chance to do some sort of leadership class like that, take it, take it. 
That's all I can say. Absolutely. There's, there's certainly a lot to, uh, a lot to learn. And it's that, that hubris factor can make you think, you know, that either this job is simple or, or I already know all this stuff. Uh, because we all form strong opinions, yeah. especially about what we see from management. You always think about, you know, I'm, I would do this differently if I were in charge, but you're not aware of everything that person is balancing and juggling and all the various pressures that are on them. Yeah. And so as soon as you get to, to understand what that's like, you realize that there are some other things that you need to do and take into account when you're, when you're handling things. Yeah. And I remember the, I'll never forget uh, trying to do sales for my contracting company back in you know, for, for Ripal back in the, the late two thousands. Um, and, uh, you know, cause previously we used to get business from other referrers. We'd kind of be like the white label partner whenever they had a big project that came in. And when the crash happened or when the 2008 crash happened, everybody pulled their business internally. So I had to go do sales myself mm-hmm. and I tried to do it myself for a long time before I finally took a sales class. Yeah. And, Gosh, I wish I would have taken that sales class sooner. I learned so much stuff that I was doing wrong and it all made perfect sense when I heard about it. Yeah. But I just, I, I was just a really, really cocky person at the time. And I thought I, that I could do this on my own. How hard could it be to figure out? Right. Yep. Yep. And so, uh, and, you know, same thing with, uh, with IT management. I had a lot of strong opinions of that, uh, before I, I really got into, I got into a lot of the safe training stuff, but I read a lot of books before that. And it's, uh, it's a real education kind of understanding it. A lot of it is, is optimization problems uh, you know, and constraints problems. And then the constraints become people's time for conversations instead of just, you know, coding bottlenecks yeah, and stuff. For sure. But, uh, anyway, it, it's been fantastic to have you on. Do you want to leave with any final thoughts? Just saying I really enjoyed it and appreciate your time and uh, appreciate the time of everybody who's listening. Thanks. All right. Let me give my uh, my weekly shout out. Thanks to Herd Media again for uh, for helping me get this podcast off the ground. If you're ever looking to get a podcast started or need any uh, need any advice or want to, uh, to hire a company to fully manage it for you, and you've got you know a, a larger budget than mine and you can afford to, to get professionals involved to take it over for you, contact the good folks over at uh, over at Herd Media. And uh, this has been the Carolina Codecast. <laughs>